Hi, and welcome back to MBEFs in the No podcast. This is your host, Ellen Padnos. This is a very special and very serious episode in our ongoing parent education series. I recorded this episode yesterday, and I can't stop thinking about it. Dr. Alice Liu and Dr. Ian Kramer sit down with me and share their incredible knowledge and experience about the changing landscape of drugs. In our conversation, we dive into the details of the drug industry and how they are working to get new customers at the expense of our families. And we end with some really great ideas about how we can talk to our kids, what we can do as a community, and resources available to us. I want to say a huge thanks to Dr. Quo and Dr. Kramer, not only for the time they gave us for this interview, but also for their continued service to the school district through the Medical Advisory Board. I hope you find this interview as valuable as I did. If you'd like to start a community conversation, please leave a comment on our MBEF Facebook page. If you need someone to speak with after this interview, please reach out to Alcove, A-L-L-C-O-V-E, the new teen center that is part of Beach City's Health District that we talk about at the end of this interview. Here is Alice and Ian. I'm sitting down with Alice Wo, who is the president of NVEF this year. So you're, you have double duty. Thank you for your work at NVEF. And Dr. Ian Kramer, thank you both for sitting down with us. Today we're talking about something, fortunately, we haven't seen in this district, but I know we've seen a lot of it in Southern California, which is fentanyl, accidental fentanyl overdoses. So just want to, and I figured as long as we have you, we should touch on vaping because it's around. I know I heard that the numbers are down and also marijuana because there's a lot that I've been reading lately about what marijuana is doing to teens' brains. So kind of a all-inclusive, everything we have to be careful of. And then I want to end with the best way to talk to our kid. What can we be doing as parents? So can you just take a moment to introduce yourselves, please? I'm Alice Quo, Professor and Chief of Medicine Pediatrics at UCLA. I live in Manhattan Beach. We've been here since 2006. I have two boys, one in NBMF in sixth grade and one at Costa in ninth grade. Great, great. And I know you're involved in MBEF. You're also involved in the Medical Advisory Board, right? Correct. Yeah. Can yeah. you speak to that? These aren't chairs. Okay, so I'll let you speak to that. Okay, great. Ian, can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Ryan Kramer. I am a retired emergency physician. I'm also a clinical professor of medicine at UC Riverside School of Medicine. And currently, I spend my time volunteering in Coachella Valley, where we have a second home, doing primary adult medicine for the um, underinsured. And then I lead a street medicine program for the homeless out there. I'm also the current chair of the Manhattan Beast Medical Advisory Board, which started, I think, 20 years ago. And it's comprised of about 30 healthcare professionals in the community. We meet three or four times a year, and we provide advice or suggestions to the district on things like concussions, COVID, drugs, and things like that. Alice is one of our members. All three of my children went through the Penny Camp Middle School in Miracos in their lawn. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Long out of our school. Long out of school. It's good. Thank you for continuing to help the schools out. Great. So let's talk fentanyl first, because I think that's the one that's getting the most national attention. Can we just start with the basics? What is it? Yeah, so it's a, a, a synthetic drug, and I'm a member of our Southern California Addiction Medicine Consortium, and there was a presentation just this past week by a DEA agent from the Los Angeles office, so this is fresh for me. 
but it's a synthetic drug. And basically, south of the border in Mexico, there are many fentanyl manufacturing little so groups, and they're exporting millions of pills up into our country. It is completely made from chemicals, which may go millions. Do each one of these pills have the damage to overdose? Yes. So the challenge, so the so just the history of it is that it is replacing heroin, just like methamphetamine has replaced cocaine. So methamphetamine and fentanyl are both synthetic drugs. It just takes chemicals to make, make it in a garage, and you can start manufacturing counterfeit pills. And it's a lot easier for the drug makers to make that than growing heroin, growing opium, and then drying the leaves and manufacturing like a heroin packet. And similar with cocaine, where you have to get the cocoa being the extract the drug that way. So from a business perspective, all the drug makers in south of our border have switched to making these synthetic chemicals because it's just so much easier and cheaper and much more profitable. So a single pill of fentanyl apparently only cost 13 to make. And the potency, so I don't know the dose, maybe Ian knows better, but my understanding is the potency is at least two milligrams and two milligrams can be lethal to someone who's never taken an opiate or has never tried to or anything like that. And the DEA said that 45% of the fentanyl pills on the market are at least two milligrams. So 45% of the fentanyl being manufactured right now is potentially lethal to an individual who's never taken it before. The other thing is that when they did a study last year of the drugs confiscated by the DEA, not just fentanyl, 42% of all the drugs confiscated, cocaine, methamphetamine, had fentanyl in them. So the problem is the drug cartels are learning, A, fentanyl's cheap, it's highly addictive, you mix it into your other drugs and you get people hooked. And unfortunately, as Alice pointed out, the lethality of it, the respiratory depression is phenomenally high. And to someone who's opiate naive and never taken it, one pill and you can be gone. Like the, the two group, the two people in the recent high schools in LA who both were naive and just had a pill. And then this past week, the EA is saying almost everything now has something. Yeah. So it, what the example was given is that they're usually coming across the border. This is far more detailed. No, I think this is what they're really coming across the border in passenger vehicles. It's not like cargo trucks or cargo shipping vans bringing these mess, you know, these drugs in. It's um, a passenger vehicle, maybe 10 or 20 kilos of cocaine and fentanyl. And the problem is that when it's ground up, like before it's been made into pill, you can't tell the difference. So even the drug makers are getting them used and there are individuals with substance use disorder that typically will use methamphetamine or use something else. And they'll say, so one patient said, this is the first time I use methamphetamine and then I fall asleep afterwards. So the fentanyl being laced inadvertently, most likely in other drugs. And because in the manufacturing process, like it's just hard to tell them apart. Okay. So you may have just answered one of the questions that I have just from a drug making, drug dealing perspective. To put something so lethal in the market, doesn't that hurt their business if they're patient? Yeah. You know, it, is there a... I get, not sure it, they that far. I, I think okay. the, the interesting question I think the business model is, if I can get people highly addicted to an inexpensive, highly profitable drug and I lose 10% to overdoses, 
market-wise is okay, I'm still 90. So they're so effective in addicting people early on that the fact they're losing people. It's just part of their yeah, it's part of business model. I mean, but the other thing to think about, and this was the perfect storm of why we're seeing so much fentanyl overdose now, is that during the pandemic, everybody sh- shut down. So the places where you would typically get drugs or like the bars and the nightclubs or even the street corners, that wasn't happening during the pandemic. So the drug dealers took their their business online. So now every single household is a potential place to buy drugs because you can just buy them online. And there are services where, and and unfortunately with the DEA side, is that a teenager might make it's all through social media it's not like amazon it's like through social media is it mostly through snap i am okay but i'm sure they're marketing marketing to whoever wants it a teenager might make a purchase of a few pills they're not like necessarily buying hundreds they might just buy five and they sell oh i'm just gonna walk down the street and a car comes up the transaction is made come right back into the house like that's what's happening now it's so easy for kids it's so easy and I think in adolescence, there is a certain level of experimentation that is expected and part of quote unquote normal development. The challenge when that experimentation can be so lethal. And if, even if it's not lethal, it's addictive. It's so highly addictive, isn't it? It's not even, yes, it is. But for the person who gets the fentanyl for the first time, not knowing that it's a potentially lethal, they have no chance to get addicted. They just take a pill and stop breathing. Right. So that I think we're in a very different environment than, say, in the 80s, 90s, when the drugs weren't as potent and a certain level of experimentation was a, a natural thing to do or whatever. Very. So, and there were barriers to entry then, too. Right. You had to know the right people not to go somewhere. How a big guy be exactly now, it's just so super easy. And the, the other problem is this, yeah, the lethality. So we've gone from you know, Adderall and Ritalin to methamphetamine. We've gone from marijuana with a THC content of 3% to 40%. We've gone from heroin, fentanyl, which is 50 times more potent than morphine. I mean, all the drugs, the main drugs on the market now are a lot more potent and a lot more lethal than five, 10 years ago. Yes. How about things like ecstasy and the hallucinogen? Yeah. Are they being laced with fentanyl as well? They could be. I think just in general, if you look at what substance use, patients with substance use disorder are using. The hallucinogens are, I guess, a smaller. I think that's died down a lot. People aren't using them as much. Outside of curiosity, what are the drivers for these kids? Are they looking for maybe an Adderall or something like that to help them focus? Are they just looking to zone out? What is, do you know the drivers? Well, I should reach out on social media to get a couple of pills to live. Well, out. so one thing, so we asked the DEA about like rectal fentanyl. Yeah. Are these drug cartel really marketing to kids? Mm-hmm. And they said, that's not what they think. They don't think that the drug cartels are, they have family to work. They're not intentionally trying to get kids hooked. What they're trying to do is sell their product. And by making them bright colors and like that, they're actually trying to make their drugs look less threatening is the way he phrased it. I don't know that this is intentionally they're trying to book kids per se. When we say kids, are we talking element? No, ele- uh, like Alice. Okay. I think they're just wanting to move their product. Like yeah. business people, they're trying to move their product. And the more appealing um, it is to anybody, even a 30-year-old adult, the more likely that somebody will 
see and say, oh, I'll try that. How bad could it be? It's yeah, it doesn't, yeah. It's not so again, the, the analogy would be in the old way a drug was heroin with a syringe and a spoon and a lighter and with paraphernalia that looks threatening. Yeah. A lot of people would be like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not going to use drugs. But then if it's a bunch of handful of rainbow colored pills, it's like taking a pill doesn't seem like that bad. And right. so like they could prey upon susceptible individuals who may want to try to experiment or they're out for a good time and their friends say that this is how to have a good time and they go with the flow. But I think, again, we're speaking to the potency and the reality. It's like one decision to potentially end your life. It's now, you can take it as a pill or you can sort it. So like personal experience of people I know who are doing it, who are afraid of needles and all, they can either pill it or they can, with both methamphetamine and fentanyl and heroin for that matter, now the new thing is you basically cook it or crush the pill and smoke it so you're not shooting up. So the high is just as fast and you don't have the problem with the needles. So that makes it more appealing to a younger generation who don't want to obviously use needles. So I think, you know, to your original question about our teenagers, our adolescents, I think that it's a combination of curiosity, natural curiosity, and exposure to what they're seeing on social media. And I think where right now, it was like vaping back in 2018. I think we saw lots of vaping back then uh, because parents didn't realize but it was a thing. And they didn't realize that there were devices that were being marketed that would hide the vaping, it would look like a black drive, or it would look like a marker or a pen. These vaping devices got very savvy, even like hoodie with the strings that could be vaping device. And so once parents became aware, and then we have a pandemic, what we've seen with vaping is that the percentage of high school students, high school and middle school students who said that they vaped in the last month it's gone down all of by half. So it used to be pre-pandemic around 27%, and now it's down to about 14%, which sounds like a great improvement, but recognize e-cigarettes have only been around for about 12, 15 years. And 12, 15 years ago, the teenage smoking rate was like 2 or 3%. It oh, that's 15%. So I know I am probably old enough to remember that in the 70s and, and during that time, smoking was prevalent. Everybody smoked. You smoked in your car. Kids were surrounded by that exposure. And it took 20 plus years for public health and safety messaging to get to the teenage population that they don't smoke. In the early 2000s, our rates of teenage smoking were really low because teenagers have been hearing their entire school age life, don't, don't smoke cigarettes and all of that. Then along come e-cigarettes with their flavor, and the marketing didn't fit. And we had teenagers in 2017, 2018, I've never smoked a cigarette. Oh, but vaping is okay. It's just water vapor. No, it's not water vapor. Uh, yeah, the, oh, they were like they the equivalent of chewing gum or something. Correct. It was a clever idea. Because yeah, we're, oh, I'm older now, so we're back from the U.S. smoking rates are 46%. And then pre-vaping, they got down in California to 17 18%. So you had kids who weren't seeing their parents smoke. And obviously, big tobacco said, here's a great idea and highly effective and marketed as to stop smoking, vape, which it wasn't. It was always a vehicle just to get a hook. And again, nicotine is a highly addictive chemical and you're sucking it up in a vapor, which is probably more, more efficient than smoking. So it's right. And the, the interesting thing is flavors, again, are attractive to kids, but now, from a recent report that I saw from the CDC this month, 
you know, a, a very high percentage of adults like the fruit flavored vapes as well. So it, it is contributing to increasing use of e-cigarettes by adults. And so we, we're here because we're about the school district and we don't want teenagers to do it. Plenty of adults are also it's starting to bait where they may not have smoked cigarettes before. You may be too young to remember, but the whole idea, particularly in the African-American menthol basically predates vaping because what they did with menthol is, oh, this is cool. It tastes good and all that. Yeah. Same idea. Yeah. How do you market something? Fentanyl, vaping, marijuana. Everything. Yo, I work at Coachella Valley, which produces 22% of the marijuana in the United States, in California. And there are you know, 20 marijuana jobs. You look at them, you go, Looks like orchards. There's, there's so creative marketing. Your know, kids now are going, oh, you know, it's, it's not just smoking. I, I don't smoke. It's cookies. It's, it's edible. Edible. Yeah. Which is a high risk for overdoses. This marijuana by itself is not highly toxic, but a little one or two year old Tyler who sucks down a, a marijuana cookie has some risk. And so among the flavors, the number one is fruit. The number two is candy dessert flavor. And then menthol is number three. Among every all user, not just right. the kids, all of these users. I thought that those flavored cartridges had been were not people. We were not allowed to sell them anymore. Just in Manhattan, like it has to be passed city by city. So that prop, that's prop, prop thirty one is to eliminate for the state for the state for right. Oh, so that. Oh, okay. That's all. So right. the, the, current no. the current proposition. 30. Okay, yeah. thank you. Yeah, but we eliminated all tobacco sales in the city of Manhattan Beach uh, before the pandemic. We were the second city in the world. I didn't had- know that. Yes. So you can't even go to the gas station and buy a pack of cigarettes in Manhattan Beach? No. You just go to Lawndale Hall. Right. But the, the, the surrounding communities aren't right. that far. Wow. Well, I think Hermosa did ban flavor. They were considering to ban all tobacco sale related. Redondo, I think, also considered banning flavors. So local community that City by city and LA County has 80 plus cities. So we got to go one by one. The county or the unincorporated parts of LA County ban sale of flavors as well. I think LA City, it took many years and I think they're still in the process of just recently banned sale of flavors in LA City. Well, I look at the Battle Ronette, Dodder, Manhattan, and Hermosa all have the cannabis dispenser. It's now, unfortunately, a multi billion dollar industry. And as long as there's money involved, okay, in a market. I, I have some. Just what, yeah, the, the thing is that the big tobacco companies, it is all money. It all is. So Jewel got bought out by the makers of one of the big tobacco yeah, companies. Yeah, the Phil Morrison. Cool, right, uh, exactly. It, and they're also buying the marijuana dispensary. Like, it's all one industry now. It's big tobacco equals cigarettes, e-cigarettes, and marijuana. I did not know that at all. Yes. But you think about it from their perspective. Like, it's a business. They're right. trying to make money. Right. And get them young. Yep. Um, okay. So I, a bunch of questions came up in my brain when you guys were talking. So let's talk first about nicotine. So if you're vaping, and this is more for conversations with our kids. Yeah. Why, if a response is smoking isn't good for you, your vaping isn't good for you. What's the real why? Cause Nick, cause they would, I could imagine a kid say, my lungs aren't getting the smoke like in cigarettes. So it's not bad for you. What's the, da- is the danger in nicotine? Is it in the wow. Or the solvent, the okay. carrier. So nicotine in itself, as I said, very addictive. But then the solvent, I, I tell kids, it's the equivalent of inhaling hairspray. It's not water. It's a bunch of volatile chemicals that they figured out how to vaporize to carry the nicotine. It's all chemical. 
So yes, smoking a traditional cigarette, burnt paper, carbon, deposit, like you're not getting that in the lung. But prior to the pandemic, prior to the pandemic, we were seeing e-volley, e-cigarette, acute lung injury. And that was from the solvent that was affecting the lung tissue, which is very delicate. Oh my gosh. Thank you for, so it's not the nicotine itself. It's the solvent. It's, it's the deliver. Okay. Can you speak to the dangers of nicotine? Agitation, side the addicting possibility, the overdose on nicotine. You can't overdose on vaping, but you can overdose on it. Yeah. It's bad for brain development. You know, right. so you were speaking to, like, I, I don't think anybody disagrees that nicotine is bad for brain development. You end up with kids who may have you know, uh, more anxiety, difficulty falling asleep, just a lot of mental health attacks on the brain that it's an already a kind of difficult period of time. And then everything that comes with substance use, so hiding it from your parent, dealing with the stigma, feeling the dependence on nicotine, but not being able to ask for help. Those are all the kind of secondary issues that come with anybody with substance use disorder. And so to deal with the Physical dependence on the chemical is the first thing, but then all of the social issues that come with it, your friends or so on and so forth, or, or having to lie to your parents. I never thought about that part of. The other thing is, you know, the scare tactic was, you know, to use tobacco and marijuana, it escalates. So I could tell from personal experience with family members, all that if you look at addicts in their 20s and 30s, marijuana and smoking all predated the higher part of drugs. So that, that doesn't mean that every smoker and every marijuana user goes on a heroin fentanyl, but certainly most fentanyl, heroin, methamphetamine users were using the other stuff first. And it's just a very easy transition to go from one to the other. And like when you've gone from Adderall or Ritalin to stay away to methamphetamine, the high is so much better. When you've gone from now heroin and fentanyl, I mean, as you move up the level of toxicity that because the the effect on the brain of the high is so much better. So you can talk to a methamphetamine user and say, here's a bottle of Ritalin. They'll go, I'm not taking Ritalin anymore. I've got methamphetamine. It's a hundred times better high. Right. And so that's like, like a, so we should speak a little bit because there are 10% of kids legitimately need their stimulant medication. Um, right. And so, but that needs to come from a doctor. That needs because to come from a doctor. And they run out and take it from a friend. That's when they're right. at. Trouble. So there's a couple of things related to prescription drugs. The pre, if you want to look at the precursor of the current opioid epidemic, there was a period of time that there were too many prescriptions for pain medication that was being diverted. And diverted means used for a different purpose, like used for recreational reasons or not as a physician intended. And so through a series of legislation and a lot of education to physician and kind of structural safeguards put in place by the Department of Justice and all of this stuff, we've seen pers- like the diversion of prescription drugs go down a lot. Probably 10, 15 years ago, it was rampant. The kind of thing where a, a patient would have a root canal or some dental work done and get 30 pills of Vicodin for, for pain that might last a day or two. And so then you, that high the potential. A patient who doesn't know that once the pain is gone, you can stop taking medication, continues to take it, and then get addicted, right? So a lot of education of the community, a lot of education of pharmacists, monitoring. So that has all gone down, but that sort of started this whole need for patients to have these types of substances. In the case of ADHD and stimulant medication, there's a nationwide shortage of Adderall right now. Because I actually, that's one of my specialties here at UCLA and Redondo, is I treat 
largely patients with uh, neurodevelopmental conditions, including uh, ADHD. And what the DEA reported this week is there is like counterfeit Adderall flooding the market because patients are desperate to get a medication that they need to do well in school or at work. And it is all um, methamphetamine and caffeine. It's all non, like non-pharmaceutical elements. It's drugs and caffeine that is from being counterfeit. Because again, those drug dealers and those drug makers south of the border see a need and patients in the U.S. are wanting their Adderall. Right, they're legitimate so, Adderall. I think the, the message for any family listening, if have a student who has ADHD and is on Adderall, talk to your physician because we're all switching those patients to other stimulant medications so that if there's others, there's plenty on the market that you can try that doesn't have to be Adderall. But the gateway phenomenon that I am talking about is true, that, that prior to the pandemic, the research was demonstrating that students who started with vaping were more likely to go on, seven times more likely to go on to traditional cigarettes and other drugs. And the other scary thing is if you look at long-term addiction, all with the best programs in this country and the world, and there are some, there are some new ways to treat addiction. The success rate for a, an addict in this country, across the country, at best with the best programs is 16 to 20%, maybe 25%. So the reality is that once you go along that path, it's very difficult. I've got a family member involved in this. It's a struggle with all the best programs, doing everything right. They still bounce back and get addicted and, and stay addicted. Yeah, I have a, a a very good friend who's, and they miss he misses it every single day of his life. And he's like, I'm clean, and I've been clean for you know 18 years. He's like, but every single day. So I can't imagine living with something that you want every day. The willpower involved in that substance, it's alcohol. And we have a lot of alcohol use in the South Bay. So I think we're talking about harder substances, but alcohol, the most common, and the one that our teens actually have the most access to. And that's one of the things, going back to the earlier parts of the Manhattan Beach Advisory Medical Board was the, the safe houses and all that. And there was still a, there was still a percentage of parents in this community who believe as long as their kid, they're at my house and I'm, I'm supervising their alcohol parties, that's still going on. So we, you know, I don't know that we have parents doing fentanyl parties, obviously, but the alcohol issue and the fact that alcohol is okay. Yeah, that's a message we have to get the community that, in fact, no alcohol still has some significant side effects and problems and just condoning it. Not okay. Yeah, right. It's a hard message for teenagers to hear, okay, alcohol might be okay, or even vaping is okay if the parents vape, but then so how do they know not to go further? Right. And so when you asked the question earlier about, like, how do we talk to our teens about this or how do we help educate, I think. There needs to be like a multi-pronged approach where a teen in our community is hearing the message from different people, right? Because teen- teenagers naturally, there comes a point where all parents are stupid and all was parents or whatever. And so we know that happens, but they need to hear from the school and they need to hear it from each other and they need to hear it from their peers that like, yeah, no, I don't want to do the thing. I have a soccer game this weekend and I don't want to affect my performance or no drugs are stupid. I'm not, why would I want to do that? I want to have fun on my own. Like they need to hear that from peer. And so that's how you collectively raise the, you know, ability of a community to stand up against drugs. But I also think, and this is a harder thing for parents to do, it's hard to have just this conversation with your teenager if you don't normally talk to your teenager a lot about different things. 
So if, if the relationship is such the teen runs and just comes in and out and hardly ever shares anything about his or her day, it's hard for a parent to be like, hey, can we have a serious conversation about drugs? We're talking about anything else. So I think to the extent that you can, can you know, keep that communication going with your teenagers, I tell the uh, parents, like, ignore some of the side eye and all of the stuff that comes with teenagers uh, and the way they do their parents, because the more that you can at least have conversation, the more you can slip in a message about not using drugs. And then regulating social media, I think by the time they're 16, 17, that's a little hard. But when they're 11, 12, I think a lot of these conversations are great to start yeah. in sixth grade. When yeah. your kid doesn't, yeah. you got to, you know, when you look at it, you've got to look at it. Like, yeah. you know, our middle, <laughs> middle, middle school for sure. Yeah. Because yeah. you're yeah. right. Definitely have to get involved with that. It's also a peer group. I look at some of the people, I look at some of the kids who graduate from Miracles and want to have addiction problems that I, I know from families. And a lot of those peer pressure, you know, they weren't the kids. You know, you, you've also had COVID and social isolation now for two years. So you've got the more vulnerable kids, the kids who are bullied or the kids who are more academically less, more stressed out. These kids tend to meet their other peer groups who are also stressed out and don't have a lot of self-confidence, resilience. And they go down that path. But once you go down that path and you're on, it's hard. Yeah. And especially once you get out of school and if you're in that peer group, you're surrounded by people who are doing drugs that it's so prevalent and so accessible and so cheap yeah. that it's very easy to become addicted. And it's all tied into adolescent mental health. So I get asked to talk about adolescent mental health. Some in South Bay. And we know that after the pandemic, the rates of anxiety are sky high in, in everyone. Kids, teenagers, adults, parents, everybody have anxiety. But I, again, in our clinic, see many patients who come in with mental health issues, but either they or their parents are so resistant to mental health treatment. Oh, really? Oh. I didn't, I thought it was a shortage of mental health professionals. Oh, it's it's more a resistance to the binary 20 that I have recommended based on the severity of the symptom. I really think that we should treat the anxiety with and anti-anxiety medication like Zoloft, Sertraline, or Prozac, Fluoxetine. And, you know, there are many parents who are just very nervous about that. And I don't know if they're equating that to like a substance or something. I try to tell them, first of all, we're trying to prevent suicidality, which is very high in adolescents. And if we can stabilize the mood, then we're not close to the suicide cliff. But the other is, if we don't create that, suffering teenager is going to try to find something to make them feel better. And that's when they might turn to a recreational drug or something that a friend gives them because they're hurting. They're hurting. Exactly. And life is hard. Life is hard when you are a high schooler trying to get into some dream college or want to play some competitive sport or whatever it is. There's just a lot of pressure on Adam. And especially looking in affluent communities, the pressure, having been a, a coach and all that, the pressure in these communities, yet to get into the best schools, to perform athletically and all, is overwhelming. You had the isolation of COVID for two years. These, these kids are just, their stress level is up here and it's not even coming down now. The other thing is, and the, as Alice points out, the newer drugs, you know, anti-anxiety and Valium and all that stuff got a bad rap. The newer drugs, the newer drugs for anxiety and mental illness are a lot better and a lot safer. And there are a lot better choices than not taking. So you've got this whole battle of, I don't want my kids taking pills, but sometimes 
kind of outdated information you get in your brain that right it's there's new well and i i do uh, any patients who've seen me they've heard me make okay anxiety it's a quality of life issue so is a runny nose so i'll get patients coming in with nasal allergies right seasonal allergies nasal congestion chronic runny nose they're constantly sickly and I say, we could try something like Zyrtec or Claritin, which is now over the counter, but I could prescribe prescription version. Parents have no problem feeling that. Right. Taking a pill for that, which is not life threatening. It's just a little irritating, annoying. You could also just carry a box of tissues everywhere. But parents are so ready and willing to let their kids take those medications. But what is anxiety, the number of parents I have there, well, I want them to learn to deal with it on their own. I want them to pull themselves up. They got a snap out of it. And I'm like, it's not as chemical imbalance as a raise when there's so much stress going on and anxiety and they're in this environment that is such a pressure cooker. It's hard to see how a teenager would snap out of it. Yeah. When you talk about the issue, if you tell people, okay, if you look at anxiety and mental health and drug addiction as cancer and diabetes and chronic obstructive these are chronic lifetime diseases. You wouldn't tell a diabetic, we're not giving you insulin, you'd suck it up. Well, no, I don't need that, sure. Right, can't do that. So you got these people have to be treated because they've got a lifelong, genetically predominantly created illness, which needs to be alleviated. And uh, when you add all the stresses going on now, yeah, the idea of sucking it up, I'm afraid, is not very effective. It's no, abstinence, it's a great idea if it works, but it doesn't really work all the time. So. Yeah. Or even sometimes you say, oh, meditate or do that. Right. Like, it's more than that. Right. right. And we know, I think, as parents, when it is a little more, and you certainly know as doctors, what do you think it was about the pandemic that triggered all of this depression, both in adolescents and in adults? Because we're seeing it across the board now. Yeah. In adolescents, it was very clear. We have a psychologist at UCLA that does a great presentation across the country. The rates of eating disorders, like quadruple, quintuple, the hospitalizations that we had for eating disorders during the pandemic were largely pet teenager was through the roof. And I think it's the social isolation. Like at adolescence is a time, and, and we were just talking about, you know, kids want to be with their friends, not their families. So this is just the natural time that they're discovering themselves and exploring all the the identity stuff and their the where they draw their social acceptance or their social their grooviness is in being with kids their age and when that didn't happen for months and months on end during the pandemic because of the school closure i think that really caused this anxiety and depression that we're seeing that like i said is not yeah but you right why haven't um, kids pop now that they're back in school? Excuse me for you know, the naive question. But now that they're back in school and they are connected to why haven't they friends? Why haven't? And a snap out. I don't mean to be disrespectful yeah, to yeah. mental health illness by using the word snap out because I yeah. definitely believe in the criticalness and the importance of treating it. But why? what happened? I think it depends on the level of severity, right, of the mood disorder. So if it's just a mild, like, funkiness, oh, I'm bummed that I could hang out with my friends. And maybe we saw that sort of in our younger kids, that, like, they didn't have play dates and it was hard to navigate that. And now that they're all back together, they're still in that age where, oh, now I'm happier because I have friends to play with. That's a little bit easier. But I think during that 
very crucial period of adolescence where there are lots of things that are going on. Puberty is happening. Development of romantic interests are happening. Exploration of your own sexual orientation is happening. So this period of time is harder to have had that period of isolation. And then now as all the kids are coming back, there's more judgment. There's more acceptance. We also came back to a society that is so much more politically charged that it may not have been the same environment that they came back to as prior to the pandemic. So I think the reason that we're still seeing after effects, I think definitely there's improvement this year. And I'll just say clinically, last fall, this time last year, every single week I had a suicide routine in my clinic. This year, none. But this year I'm getting the kinder first, second graders that have a lot of school adjustment issues that they never did preschool in person or they did their kindergarten, but it was not really effective because it was all Zoom. So we are seeing a lot of disruptive behaviors in our younger ages, and that I think is also related to coming back from the pandemic. So to me, I think it's better. And I, I will just have to give a shout out to Manhattan Beach Unified School District for the late start. Because when... In high school. It is time for act. Middle school? Middle, the law says that middle school can't start any earlier than eight or around 8, and high schools can't start any earlier than 8.30. Right. Yeah. So this is a really big difference, but that extra half hour of sleep, I think it's really crucial. That was the rationale behind the legislation in 2014 was an AAP report that demonstrated that if kids, if teenagers could get more sleep, the adolescent mental health issue would be much improved. And I think we are, at pediatrician, we are noticing Hey, yeah, kids are doing better. Those kids are seeming to do better. That was one. Of the, that was one of the things that the advisory board pushed for decade. And Manhattan Beach was went earlier. The only school district right. that signed on officially. Right. To Even though this was known, you guys, because of the advisory board and, and the whole yeah. approach of the Manhattan Beach schools, it started when a lot of schools weren't. The evidence was clear. Yeah, right. That it made a difference. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, if you don't sleep, you think about it. If, if you have a bad day, yeah, and six hours of sleep, you're cranky and stay. You know, so then everybody said, if they, if you just push it back later, they're just going to stay up later. No, the whole problem is the like the circadian rhythm in children naturally makes it so they want to stay up later in their <laughs> teenage years, so they can't fall asleep a lot of time. But even still, just being able to sleep in that little bit extra has made a huge difference. I think. Yeah, one of my, do you remember Wendy Troxell? She gave two talks at the Manhattan Beach TEDx and I worked with her on one of them. She was a sleep specialist. She said melatonin doesn't even kick in in teenagers until 1130. Yeah. So the thought of getting them to bed at 1030 is just, that's going to bed at 430 p.m. Exactly. So, yeah, I always thought that really helped me in understanding my kids with sleep. So I have a couple questions that, you know, I'd love to get to the Parents now, my um, jaw was on the table for the first half of what you were the conversation because it's so overwhelming and so scary and just horrific for all these poor children that they have enough that they're against, like you mentioned, with the stress. And then to give them this easy accessibility to drugs is just heartbreaking. So as parents, what can we do? I also want to talk about like an on-ramp thing. Like I had a friend a couple of years ago say her son hadn't drank as a senior. And she was like, I'm really worried about this kid going to college because we all know that kid in college who never drank in high school 
and then they get to college and they go crazy. So how do as parents, we, I'm with you, I don't want high schoolers drinking, but then we send them away. What is the right balance there? There's a bunch of questions there, but right. I, I thought I, you have. I think it is about the kid and why that child had decided not to drink alcohol in high school. And I think if the child, if the teenager made that decision because they have too much going on and they read it up and educated themselves about how alcohol makes you feel or it can impair your thinking and you don't want to drink right before you have to take a big test or whatever. Or if they're an athlete, and I see sports as often being protective. Yeah, I, I see it as well. Yeah, so so I don't, it's not as if that individual can go to college and then the alcohol is going to grab up. Like, I think that kind of rationale, like, I would trust, hopefully, that that teenager that made good decisions in high school will continue to make good decisions in college. Like, why not? And so it, it is about the ability to stand up peers. And I think that's what happened. The only thing I can think about in college is not to say anything ill of the Greek system, but in certain Greek organizations, fraternities, sororities, like drinking is a big part of the culture. And so I could see that if a student decides to join one of those, they will be immersed in a drinking culture and perhaps might have a harder time resisting like, I don't want to drink this weekend or next weekend or every weekend. Everybody's like, why not? Why not? Why not? At some point, that's just a lot of pressure. But again, I think it's about making choices because as an adult, that's what we do every day. Yeah, I think definitely it's a peer group. And also, I think you, I don't think the scare techniques work, but I think that you know who they're around and what they're doing that helps. And you're like, I think both of my sons, not my daughter, drank illicitly at home, which we didn't know because they were filling the vodka bottles with water. And you know, basically, we had some discussions and all that. A couple of, they had a couple of incidents which they learned from and they kind of got through it. So I don't think, I think each child has to make its own decision, but it's peer group is for you can't as parents just say, call is bad, don't get drunk and all that. So I think you just kind of, kind Especially, of, and I think this is where like modeling right. for the children get to a glass of wine at dinner. If you say anything about that, but if parents are also drinking to the point of falling asleep, passing out all the weekend, you know, that. Kids, no, kids are paying attention. Yeah. They think they're not. If you look at, look at the European cultures, the French and the Italians who start drinking when they're, at home, and when their kids are young, they have a lower instance of alcoholism problems than we do because it's kind of part of the culture and the kids know it and they don't go out. It's not about drinking drugs. Right. It's not about getting no. drunk. Right. It's not about getting drunk. Right. And so a lot of parents give that to me as the reason that they don't have a problem with their teenagers drinking. And I think it's a different culture in Europe. Right where you appreciate a nice glass of wine with a meal, it's not we're gonna drink a bottle playing beer pong at right. the house this weekend right. with my high school seniors. Wow! So how do we? Thank you for that answer, and I love what you said about the choices. It's about choices for any kids of when you have little kids. It's about do you choose a cookie or do you choose an apple for a snack? You right. know, and it just it's a lifetime of making good choices. Exactly right. What do we do? So let's just get back to, and I, I think we can cover them together, fentanyl and vaping. How do we, we talked a little bit, Alice, about talking to our kids. I had read somewhere that maybe if we explained the kind of the dopamine and the brain, the way dopamine works to our kids, that could be helpful because the more we arm them with information, it just makes sense to me. Even the, um, like what you explained about the wax in the vape, you know, how that it's really, it's like injecting hairspray. 
That's something you can tell a kid. Mm -hmm. Kids not going to beep after they hear that. I hope, hopefully, because that's awful. The the visual of doing that. Do you have any other ideas of how we could talk to our kids? No, I think this. I'll tell personal story. I, I I started smoking in junior high when I was thirteen with my best friend, whose dad was our family doctor. This was before smoking was thought to be all that bad. And about a week and a half in, his dad gave my friend these pictures of black lung. Right. And I was 13. And I looked at those pictures with Steve and I stopped smoking. I haven't smoked since. So sometimes, sometimes graphic imagery makes it, makes a thing. That's a good, yeah. So I will, any patient who's ever seen me and anybody who's listening who's my patient, they'll know I tell them this all the time. So starting middle school, I have the thing that I cover in a checkup with my middle school student. And one, you know, one vaping. So again, 2017, 18, vaping was very prevalent. And even at our middle school, the teachers were reporting like it's and it's second, it's spring semester, seventh grade. That's when it all starts. The sixth graders aren't doing it, but by the end of seventh graders, the kids who are going to vape were vaping. And it whatever happened at that point developmentally. And so I was asking my teachers, like, okay, so do you, do you see it at your school? In my middle force, do you see it? Do you know who's doing it? Oh, everybody in the bathroom that you avoided because where it was all happening. And I, and what I learned from the student themselves were telling me, it's not, nobody starts doing it at school. It's all out of school. Like they're hanging out all the weekends after school and somebody takes out a pen and starts passing it around. And, and then there's the pressure because you're just chatting in a group. The pet being passed around, when it gets to you, what are you going to do? And if you say no, then they're called you the, risk social isolation. Yeah, you'll be how long there'll be such a brain or whatever. And my students were telling me the best thing to say is, no, I can't. My mom drove test. <laughs> it's funny. One of my girlfriends did that to her daughter. And then when she offered to stop, the daughter was like, no, keep testing me. Because you can buy tests on Amazon. Well, you can buy tests in the drugstore. Yeah. Wow. Whether your mom does or not, and, and just so, say it. So just say it because, yeah. <laughs> because it causes all the other kids to be like, oh, oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, get it. Yeah. No, it's an easy out. It's an easy out. It's an easy out. And I think what we need to do is arm our students, our kids, with more of those types of strategies to confront peer pressure. And there was a brief time with, with Gary Riddle and all when we had drug testing with the athletes during that three or four year period. Yeah. But that three or four year period, drug use went way down. Whether you were an athlete, okay. getting tested. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's a highly effective strategy. I think there's a, this is just from having friends and listening to my friends. I think there's a lot of kids who don't want to drink and do yeah. nothing, but, but they're just, if you want to go to a party, you have to hold a red cup. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Absences. More kids than not, their kids say to them, I don't really want to go. There's going to be drinking there or, but I have to go. I have to be seen there. It's a really, it's a really hard situation for these kids. It's also complicated by, of course, the legalization of marijuana. Yeah. Avoid the politics, but 35, 40% of Paisal kids or whatever are more using it because the answer is, but it's legal. I know. You know, I hear that. So I go, well, it's medically acceptable. That's a whole separate story. You go, yeah, just because something is legal doesn't mean it's good, but it's not really healthy. And when... Marijuana was legalized in the state almost 10 years ago now. I think our American Academy of Pediatrics, we were very concerned. Like we voted, we were very against our proposition of legislation. However, the rationale was making it legal would mean that it could be regulated. Like 
alcohol, <laughs> that there would be signage that would say how much proof, like how potent is this product? And that's the part that has been delayed. The legalization wasn't to just put the market and just say you don't have to go to jail if you sell, but it was to, to start to hold some sort of accountability so that consumers could tell like the quality of the product or that it wouldn't be laced with other things or some of it could, I don't know, that's what I would guess, less potent marijuana compared to more potent marijuana. That part has happened and that where when people admit to me in the office clinic that they use marijuana, I make sure you're getting it from a trusted source. We ha- I have had patients who have blacked out, had seizures, and I'm like, I did, was it that substance that you were using? I don't know. I got it from a friend. But that's how casual the market is. So you just have to be very careful. There's also some, besides the long-term cognitive effects, this one of my partners wrote the article on hyperemesis and yeah. marijuana. So there's a whole... A whole phenomenon now, which is basically excessive vomiting, going to the ED and requiring really high potency meds to stop the vomiting. It is basically intractable vomiting from marijuana that some people get, but it's just the worst thing you've ever seen. And it's dose dependent. Yeah, it's dose dependent, correct. The other thing that's so scary to me is um, talking about, I know, two families who are suffering from their young adult children in their 20s have smoked so much marijuana, they've both kind of, in, uh, they have some sort of mental psychosis. One, they think it's schizophrenic because of a smoking. Yeah. Too yeah. And, th- and the one friend, her daughter still smokes marijuana. She doesn't know how to get her to stop. But it's now, it's just so part of their so family. The other it's problem, heartbreaking. I think one of the challenges we have with the for, you know, sporadic or just intermittent legalization of marijuana is that it's still illegal nationally. And because it's still illegal nationally, it is very difficult to do research on marijuana. What are the treatments? What are the effects? What are the potencies that are damaging or more damaging? So I think because of that, I'm not I'm not supporting or broad legalization of marijuana, but there does need to be research. And there are because I know UCLA has um, some researchers looking into marijuana, but it's still very early. So we don't know about a lot of the ill effects of marijuana because it just hasn't been studied. And we probably should be doing more studies because more and more people are using and we like we study anything that affects our health. Like we should know what the health effects are. Thank you. And I thought your point about the black lung and those visuals was such a good one. And just to parents listening, when I was trying to research for this article, you can go to YouTube and type in fentanyl overdoses of high schoolers. There are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of parents who are talking about losing their all-A student. And so those might be some good things to show our kids. Because I just want parents to be able to walk away with some actionable. After spending an hour of their lives, what are, how do they bring this back to their family to help their kids? I think, I think the one thing that we advocated at our last uh, medical advisory board thing, I, I spoke very passionate about it, is to carry Narcan. Okay. I yeah. have that there needs to be school supplies of Narcan in the middle schools and I, and there's not now. Uh, they have to go through the. Okay, they all have to get official, right? But we at the medical advisory board did make that very strong recommendation, and the DEA also. When I asked the DEA, absolutely every single school should have school supply of Narcan. But the more Narcan there is in the community, because you don't know who's going to be taking a pill and then stop breathing. And the problem with that, the 
respiratory arrest comes so quickly that if the Narcan isn't readily available, even running to like the main building where it's being held, it takes 10, 15 minutes, like you could lose somebody. So it's slightly unrelated but relevant. So I work with the homeless, right? And there's a certain percent, 25, 30% that are addicted. The government finally let Narcan become more available. We started handing out Narcan to our homeless. This is about six months ago in the summer. Came back two weeks later to our encampment. And the lead man of the encampment said they had saved 10 people in that two-week period. Because, you like, had given them that much yeah. dosage? Yeah. No, the Narcan. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, yeah. We gave, well, you gave them plenty. Gave, it's not like give them one shot. No, it's a, a, it's cheap. B, it's inhalable. It's not injectable. Oh, there is, there is a, there's absolutely no reason not to have Narcan. Like me, Narcan as an ear doctor, it's like AEDs. If you're jogging on the track for a friend of mine and the AED was there, be to die. The AED saved this. If you're AED, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Automatic external. Oh, okay. So if you have a heart attack and your heart starts, stops beating. Okay, yeah. Put the, put the shot will only. So if you're basically popping their fentanyl pill and you stop breathing, you take the nasal spray and 15 seconds later wake up. You don't have the nasal spray. It's so, I had even heard someone, I think it was a nightline, a parent who their child was saved, but they said everyone should have this in yeah, yeah, their house. Absolutely. Even if you have a super, you have super kid, not a side. Oh, let's talk about what are the signs. Just even if we think we have the best kid in the world, what are the signs and where can we buy an Arcan? That's a good question. I think you have to get a prescription. But oh, I, okay. anybody who passes out for no reason, anybody just is... Can, can it hurt if, if they pass out for no reason from something else? No. So yeah. the only side effect of Narcan is if you give Narcan to a chronic opioid user who is, stops breathing, they get withdrawal. Yeah. And I can tell you from personal experience and family members and all, would you trade that miserable withdrawal for being dead? And the answer is no. The withdrawal was annoying, but it's not going to kill you. Okay. Right. So, and to a, a naive person has no, if, no, if they didn't take, if they so take like something no, else, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's not going to hurt you. It's just like shooting, so, it's like shooting flotase for an allergy up your nose. It has no exactly. side effect. Okay. And so, I think you need a prescription for it. I think. Yeah, I think it's going to change, but it is. I think it's going to change a lot because of the, it, it just so rampant what's happening now, but okay. that so many people are overdosing unintentionally. Okay. And I'm so sorry, this is going so long. I just, it's so important and you're sharing so much good information. So thank you. The last thing I would love to cover is you talked about kind of, and I loved this back to the visuals, a multi-pronged approach. Coaches sending the same message, parents sending the same message, the community, friends, teachers. Um, any Are we doing anything? And maybe this is a medical advisory board question. Are we doing anything as a community to communicate this danger and to try to get inviting coaches in and are we training coaches on talking about drugs and alcohol and some of these challenges are we training teachers what are we doing if anything yeah i think we're starting to have those conversations like this was a big topic in our last advisory board meeting ali Stewart from the uh, beach city's health district was there and she's their director of like partnerships or something if anybody didn't know alco is a Adolescent Mental Health Center that opened in Beach and South District in Redondo Beach uh, last week. And I think their doors are going to open next week to the general public. And I think that through our partnership with our local public health district, this isn't something that like it takes a village, right? I think we should be seeing, because I, I in our conversations with the school district, they are aware and want to be proactive that we should be seeing parent education and bringing in speakers and Programming through Beach City's Health District and programming through 
different districts. I know that right before the pandemic with vaping, we collaborated with Rhonda Beach. We had an event at Manhattan Middle School, and then we have one at Redondo Union. And we had, I think we had representative assembly member Albert Tucci at one of them. You know, he hosts their panel. So it, it's coming back to this is still here. This is still an issue. There was a two year delay because of the pandemic, but we were very actively working on all of this before the pandemic to address vaping. And now I think we just need to ramp it all back up and now address other substances that are teenagers. Yeah. Back, back about a decade ago. And- Dr. Rocky Wilson was one of the teachers here and all that. We had the drug team, I think it's even before Alice. And we started the peer program because their didn't work, caring didn't work. And we had a bunch of kids who were highly motivated, like, like the ones who volunteer on our advisory board and they did peer to peer counseling. And that was much more effective. That's the key. The parents can talk and Dr. Wilson can talk and the head, you know, Anthony Fauci can talk. It doesn't matter. You get a peer group of some of the, now the kids in there. And that was. The three or four years we did that was the most effective thing we did. That was done at Costa? I completely exactly. agree. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That and they all throw teenager, they say the same. Right. They have a because it beach cities. Yeah. And it's only, what, the 40, a 25-year-old, something yeah. like that. Exactly. So, and it's open. And it, it, they, they say the same thing. The most effective, that's why they have a very active youth advisory group, but youth advisory council, like peer one, teenager one, the peer. Yeah. All, I see. Yeah. <laughs> Over a 16 year old. Yeah. Yes. I know very little these days, but the kids know a lot. You'll know that. <laughs> it's hard to imagine. Wow. So if I'm, if I am a teenager listening, if teenagers listen to this, or if I have a child who I think is vaping, is, but they don't want to talk to me, is Alcove someplace that they could go on their own, separate from me? Because I thought that was really interesting what you brought up about that secondary set of problems. Like, oh my God, now I'm addicted to nicotine. So I have to have money to keep up with this habit. I can't tell my parents because they'll kill me, but I don't, it, I know it's not good for me. So I do think, kids recognize that? Do kids, do addicts recognize that some, their behavior is not serving them? Eventually. Eventually they do. Eventually they do. It takes a while. Okay. It takes a while. Certainly so teenagers don't. don't okay. Understand that. Right. But okay. They, so they, they will recognize something wrong. Okay. Right? They may not be able to ex- explain it, but the outcome model is started up at Stanford and it's based on this notion in other countries. So there's uh, a group of like adolescent drop in wellness centers in the country of Australia. They're called headspace centers or so not related to the app. But there are like 140 of them all throughout the country of Australia, which is about the same size as California. And basically, teenagers know that it's a safe space for mental health issues, for wildness, and it's a hangout for social. And what they're staffed by are sort of non-clinical staff that can help triage. It's supposed to be an inviting place, and so teenagers can open up. So that's been around in Australia for 10 years, and they recognize that this is what it takes to address adolescent mental health. A group of Stanford led by a child psychiatrist replicated that and they have an all code sign at Stanford. This is being funded through mental health dollars from the state uh-huh. because the state is recognized this adolescent mental health like epidemic crisis. And so Alco B City is the second one in the state and there's like slated to open. Oh, lucky, lucky us that we had the second one. That's incredible. And so the idea is that, yeah, teens can come. It's free. It's all there are. That peer to peer model you were talking about. Model, and the Alcove and Palo Alto's partnered with Stanford, the one here partnered with UCLA, but we have, they've done a great job of identifying service providers in the area, all willing to work with this population. And so 
There were a number of mental health providers and substance use providers. Uh, Paul Galbert from our own advisory board was there. That if there is a family, is there the teenager who's hurting, they can go to Alcove and get help. Okay. And if a family member, like a parent, don't know what to do, they can also go to Alcove and ask for help. So I think this population approach to destigmatize adolescent mental health issue to to make it more welcoming to affirm these teenagers with what they're seeing and, and what they're experiencing, and then to connect them to the places and hopefully get them in early before it gets really bad or really hard. And it's like literally walkable to Redoubt. So close. True. So it's a good location for the big cities, actually, and, and they're hoping to be able to spread out beyond just the three big cities eventually. I think it's a great uh, model. And it's something like that where it is a no place to go and get help or just hang out and just explore. Like, I'm feeling really stressed out of this normal stress or if this is not good, I talk to a therapist. That's a place what I consider drop-in triage. Right. Like, yeah. That's incredible. And hopefully we can do that peer-to-peer. That would be an amazing program to bring back to our high schools. Mm-hmm. So- yeah, and they're inexpensive. I mean, these are basically inexpensive solutions to right. huge problem. Yeah. It's all about connections. Right. Yeah. Building back that fabric of connection, being part of a community where everyone belongs. Yep. I have taken so much of your time, but this was... Sorry, Alice. I know you're in the middle of your work day. Thank you both so much. Any closing thoughts or do you feel like we covered it all? I think we covered it. Okay. Yeah, we covered a lot. This was outstanding. Thank you both. Thank you for tuning in to the MBEF In The Know podcast. I hope you found this episode as interesting and eye-opening as I did. If you liked this episode, please leave a comment for us on our Facebook page. And also, please share any other topics you'd like to see us cover. Thanks to all of you who have had an opportunity to support MBEF. MBEF is part of the solution here, funding counselors at the middle school and high school. We are also part of reduced class sizes, bringing gym, library, music, makerspace, and so many other things to our kids at school. Please join us in our annual appeal if you haven't already. Thanks so much for listening.